Hello, Parkview. This is Thomas Hoke. I want to welcome you to the Parkview Groups podcast. This episode is for the week of February 13th through 19th, the Sunday 19th. And my goal each week is to inform and guide group members and train group leaders at Parkview to make disciples through their groups. So this week we're learning from Acts 20 verses 1 through 16. And during the training segment, I am excited to share some training on asking good questions, breaking through the casual to get to the the level of our hearts with one another where we can really help each other learn Christ. And that matters because community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. That is what we're all about. So let's get to it. And let's use the right sound pad. (laughs) I think I'll leave that in. All right. Well, a couple things to inform you about coming up at Parkview. First one is an opportunity for the ladies. There will be a Lent study uh, from uh, this coming Sunday until Easter, celebrating Lent, the season preparing for Easter. And what they're studying is it's called 40 Days with Jesus. Uh, That starts on the 19th this coming Sunday. It's offered there on Sunday morning in Central Campus or Thursday p.m., uh, which is sort of, I think, believe, off-site. So whoever wants to go, Central, East, whoever uh, wants to come can come for that. So 40 Days with Jesus, a Lent study for women, is starting this coming Sunday. And you can register online. We'll have the link for that in the episode notes and the group's guide everywhere uh, you want it. So, ladies, check it out. Secondly, is a bit more serious. Um, it's been shared sporadically, and um, hopefully you've heard. Uh, but right now at Parkview, we're dealing with a budget shortfall for this coming year. So each year we sort of mark out our budget, what we can afford to spend our money on for ministries of the church, based off of what we, what we set in the previous year. And this year our giving is lagging behind our budget, uh, what we project to end up be around three hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars. So our overall budget is in the realm of two point four million dollars. So we're we're following somewhere in the ten to fifteen percent uh, short um, category. So uh, you can imagine if that were your household budget, you'd be probably pretty alarmed and and needed to make some serious decisive actions uh, to deal with that. Especially as we're thinking about um, you know preparing a budget for next year and and assuming what we're are going to uh, be able to spend money on for ministries of the church. So um, that's what we're going to need to do is make some serious decisive actions to correct that situation uh, unless the the situation changes. So what I want to call you to, faithful Parkview person who is, you know, well integrated into the life of our church, if you're listening to this podcast, is first of all uh, to give. So if, if that hasn't been a faithful sort of pattern in your life to, uh, to consider giving sacrificially to the ministry of, of helping others learn Christ, making disciples through, through what we're doing here together, and I would urge you to consider that. Um, and uh, I'm sure your group leader, others, myself, <laughs> any of the other people at church would help you um, if you have questions about that or, or concerns or whatever. I know that can be a sensitive topic, but I would just encourage you, particularly for Parkview members who have, who have signed a covenant to um, agreed to support the ministries of the church, I would just urge you to do that. Um, but for everyone, I would encourage you to just pray. Pray for um, elders, pray for staff as we as we sort of assess things and have to make some of those hard decisions about what's going to happen. Um, this is not really in the realm of kind of making a few tweaks here and there. This is this will this will hurt. Um, 
uh, unless the situation changes. And we trust the Lord, and um, He's He's brought us into this into this situation. If it's for our good and for for His glory, then we'll we'll move forward with what needs to be done. Um, but we want to give you an opportunity as those who are involved and affected by those things to uh, to respond. So um, give, but also just pray, pray for us. Uh, great. Well, that's all for the inform segment. And this time I'm going to push the right button so we get the right noise as we move to the guide segment. All right, let's talk about this passage. Uh, we're going to get the big picture of the passage here, navigate any speed bumps that could disrupt discussion. And I want to give you a couple of places to sort of land in application. We are in Acts 20. Acts 20 verses 1 through 16. If you're sitting with a Bible, if you're driving in your car, do not get your Bible out. Uh, Acts 20 verses 1 through 16, it begins this way. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. I'll stop there because probably already confused. The uproar is referring to the riot that happened in Ephesus in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, which you heard preached just yesterday as I'm recording this, um, the riot in Ephesus. So he sends for the disciples. Having seen this huge commotion that happened, the town clerk dismisses the crowd. They leave. And Paul decides it's time to leave town. And so Paul sends for the disciples, encourages them, and he says, it's time for me to leave. And he goes to Macedonia. Uh, So continuing on, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, I want to note there... um, you know, we see Paul spends three months in Greece, and in those, Greece would probably be referring to more of a region than in than one specific place. But he he eventually leaves. You you just have to note that the Book of Acts is not covering sort of a, a span of just a few months or um, anything like that. is It's a period of years and years and years of ministry of Paul, and um, that should affect the way that we read the Book of Acts. Um, leaders probably notice when I share discussion questions, often one of the questions I'm having them ask you and bringing up again and again is, why did Luke think this story was worth including in the book of Acts? Because, you know, he's there for three months in Greece, and you know what, you know what, Luke, the author of Acts, you know what he tells us about it? Basically nothing. Now, certainly, disciples were made, people came to know Christ. I mean, things that we would probably say, this, is, this was huge, you know, this was huge. Miracles were done, you know, certainly. Um, and yet Luke is incredibly selective in what he shares with us, his readers, in order to achieve sort of his goals. And as we understand the the uh, authority of the scripture and how it came to us, those goals were, were coinciding with what God wanted him to write. We know uh, that, that Luke was led by the Spirit and each word, we can say, was breathed out by God. And so that's the question we're always asking when we're reading narratives, whether it's the book of Acts or 1 Kings, 2 Kings, as we, in our Parkview Bible reading plan, or whatever, Chronicles, um, or other, you know, the Gospels. Each of each of these selections is is teaching us something about what the author thought was important uh, to convey to us as readers about who God is and about how we should respond. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to, to drop that note in there just on kind of an equipping note. Um, so... Continuing on in verse 4, Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and uh, Trophimus. 
These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So this is really, this, these three verses here are really kind of a travelogue. It's telling us where they went, who went with them, and what they were doing. Um, one significant note there is you heard the, that list of names, you know, so-and-so from uh, Berea, some from Thessalonica, th- some from, um, from Derby, from Asia, which would mean Ephesus. Um, why are all these listed? Well, we've never really heard these names before for the most part. Well, we get a little insight in 1 Corinthians 16. It's, it's likely that this is what was happening, what, what is ha- recorded in 1 Corinthians 16. It says um, that Paul intends to send representatives from the churches in Macedonia um, and, and those surrounding regions with money to go to Jerusalem. You can check that out, um, and I'll encourage you to do so as we as we study this passage uh, in your group this week. Um, but it's almost certain that this is, you can see, this is where uh, Paul went on his first and second uh, missionary journeys, and his intention was for each of those churches that he planted to turn around and support the the poor Christians uh, who didn't have much money, uh, particularly the churches in, in Jerusalem. Um, and so most likely these are, these are men who came with, with contributions from the church, generous contributions. We, we have records of that in, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 8 and so forth. Other places where Paul just describes their incredible generosity and uh, they would carry that money then on to Jerusalem. And you can imagine the connection that was made between these churches, mostly comprised of Gentiles and Jewish believers, but many Gentiles who were coming and bringing um, the, their money to share with these poor Jewish Christians for the most part in, in Jerusalem and the unity that, that would have brought. So a significant thing to note, even if it sort of comes across as a bit of a, just kind of a travel narrative, um, it is theologically and sort of um, important for the, for what the church was doing at that time. Anyway, moving on, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul's about to leave town um, the next day, and so he is so eager to continue sharing time with them, teaching them, giving them all he can give them before he leaves, and we'll learn later. He's he's probably pretty certain that he's going to move on to Jerusalem and He's probably pretty certain he's going to die there. And so Paul is sort of in this eager pastoral mode where he's trying to give them everything he can with his kind of last time with them. Um, and so he he prolongs his speech until midnight. A typical first century church ser- uh, worship service is, very, you know, not that different from what we would experience today, even though it would have looked a little bit different. Um, the, the early church followed the synagogue structure and liturgy that they would normally have there. Uh, which included many of the things we're familiar with. They would sing songs together, um, which would have been songs from the Bible, the book of Psalms, for instance, um, but others as well. Um, Remember in, I believe it's in Colossians, where it says to encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So there were a number of, you know, the top charts, Christian charts, um, they were listening to, I guess, and singing together. Um, They would read the Bible. Um, Frankly, as I read sort of the, the ancient liturgies, they read the Bible much more than we do. Uh, they would have Old Testament readings, New Testament readings, Psalms, others. They would just, they read a lot of the Bible together. They would pray a lot. Um, seeing, for instance, the instructions that Paul gives in, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians about the role of uh, different people in the worship service, women, and how they would pray. And and um, there would be time for prophecy to be shared. Um, that included both, you know, kind of people sharing what God was laying on their hearts, um, whether that was in sort of prophetic mode, but also in sort of what he, we would probably consider teaching. Um, speaking what what they sense the Lord was teaching from his word, 
Um, and that's what we see here that Paul was doing, prolonging his speech until midnight. He was doing his best to share um, about Christ. He was basically, you know, preaching. Um, and then what would have been much more significant for them then was the Lord's Supper, um, which was not just sort of the stale cracker, sorry about that, but the stale cracker and juice that we have and sort of a perfunctory at times it feels perfunctory, sort of four or five minute time to reflect and share, but actually would have been a full meal. Um, they would break bread, which was sort of the the beginning of that time, but it was really, in many ways, it probably would have felt like what we would sort of think of as community group. They were eating meal together, sharing, you know, re- learning from the Bible together, discussing it, um, singing together, and so forth. So anyway, Paul, Paul continues uh, until midnight with this, and it says, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Notice the we there because Luke is with them. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, it's noteworthy that, um, so when it says as a young man, um, this is probably a man in the realm of, it it could be 18 to 30 years old. There's another place when um, this, in verse 12, when it says they took the youth away alive. That, that word youth that's used there usually refers to an even younger person. So it could have been, you know, best guesses are somewhere between 12 and 20, something like that. So a sort of a young man. Um, his name Eutychus is translated means fortunate or lucky. Um, so that's a bit of an irony in the story. It may be the reason that Luke includes his name where he often doesn't include names. But he's sitting at the window, you know, you can imagine it's a dark night. There's the room is full of torches, which were burning and, you know, giving off carbon monoxide and stuff. And it's just the room's getting stuffy. He's having trouble staying asleep. So he goes and sits by the window thinking this will help me stay awake. Maybe a little breeze would help get some fresh air. And instead, he falls asleep and falls out of the window. Uh, it says the third story there. In in our way of kind of ranking stories, that is, that is it literally does say third story. As we count stories, it would be the second story. Um, of the house, so sort of ground level, ground floor, and then one up from there. Um, and he was taken up dead. He was actually dead, um, actually dead. So uh, some versions would say taken up as dead, and that's sort of it's a colloquialism a little bit in the way that's recorded. But he was actually dead. That's what the text is communicating. And as you read the rest of the story, it's obvious that, that they wouldn't have recorded this if it had been, you know, Eutychus fell out the window, and Paul said, "Don't worry, he's not actually dead." That. This would not have the meaning that it clearly has. So he's actually dead. Um, But uh, verse 10 says, But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him up in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. You know, I think one thing that's that's clear is that the way that this story is told and how it's how it's communicated to us, it's it's meant to draw some parallels to other healings in the Bible. Um, For instance, Elijah, if you remember the death of the the widow's son um, or Wait, am I saying that right? Anyway, with through Elijah, through Peter earlier in the book of Acts, and of course Jesus. Um, you know, people laughing at Jesus as he goes into to raise raise a, a little girl from the dead, for instance. And um, you know, his life, the life is still in him. He says. Um, but when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long time until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. That's a, a habit of Luke's to use kind of that, that little turn of phrase. They were not a little comforted or, you know, they were kind of, a, they were not a little amazed, meaning the exact opposite. They were incredibly comforted. They were greatly comforted by these, by these actions. You notice too, it says, you know, when Paul had gone up, he had broken bread. 
that almost certainly refers to sort of the last part of the the worship service, which would be the Lord's Supper. Um, worship services in the first century almost always they were happening in the evening, um, and as as they counted days, it could have been Saturday night um, because the day for them started in the evening. Um, when the sun went down, it was the next day already. And by the way, that's why we count three days after Jesus was in the grave, even though Friday, Saturday, Sunday is not three days. People often point out that's because they counted days as starting in the evening. Anyway, uh, but the Lord's Supper was the way they, they concluded their meal. So there we have Paul goes up and he basically continues the service as if nothing happened a little bit. And you can imagine, I'm guessing people were, <laughs> they woke up a little bit at that point in the service and said, wow, <laughs> let's hear more from this guy. Um, that would be pretty exciting. Um, but I'll read the rest of the passage. Going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, he took a, uh, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came to fo- the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail, sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, And that's where our passage ends. So I hope uh, this will be helpful for you as you sort of prepare and meditate and think um, and prepare for Sunday to hear this passage uh, preached to you. So I want to give you just sort of a a big idea from this passage to think about and a couple primarily sort of some application points to to think through. First, um, we we certainly see that God's power is at work among his devoted people and his faithful leaders. Uh, This passage is between this passage and the rest of Acts 20, um, Acts 20 really is kind of us getting to see Paul the pastor at work. Throughout throughout Acts, we've sort of seen Paul encountering lots of different hostility, and especially from kind of the outside world as he works to, to make disciples through the synagogues and then through uh, with the Gentiles and so forth. But we often don't have Paul kind of just leading people on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. What did that look like? And this this gives us some insight, this and, and the coming passage, um, how he made disciples, how he encouraged the church. And uh, we get really a look into the life of the early church here. And one thing we have to notice and to sort of move to application here is that God really cares about the church, about this community. He cares, you know, maybe especially about their gathered time together sun, for us Sunday morning worship. Um, you can imagine what a bad taste it would have left, what a discouragement it would have made uh, left with them in um, in Troas if Paul had come, get done this great you know teaching time, but then one of their young men just falls down and dies, and then Paul has to kind of leave with that there. The Lord cared enough about what was going on in that church to to do that work of power, to do that miracle, so that they would leave encouraged and and I'm certain Paul you know would leave encouraged from that time. Uh, together. And so I, I just want to encourage you to remember God cares about how we come together, about what's happening on Sunday morning. Um, that is, that's really the lifeblood of our church is when we come together to encourage one another in that way. Um, there's a guy called Tony Payne. He wrote a book called How to Walk into Church, <laughs> uh, which is a great title for a book. Um, and it's a really good book. It's very short. It's probably, uh, you know, 60 pages and pretty small. Um, book. If any of you, by the way, are interested, whenever I mention a book, if you're like, hey, I'd love to read that, you can always reach out to me and I'd love to to get you that book um, if you can commit to read it. <laughs> um, so if you want to read that, How to Walk into Church. And here's a, a couple things he mentions. He says, first of all, how do you walk into church? First, go. <laughs> um, he says to make it the regular uh, habit for you, for your family to go to church. Um, 
one of my former pastors used to say uh, that Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. Yeah, we should make sure on Saturday night we've we've resolved in ourselves that it, we're going to church tomorrow, that that's a priority for us. So he says, go. Secondly, he says, pray. He, is, he actually particularly says that we should pray for where the Lord wants us to sit. Um, and, and he says that because he wants us to be sh- certain that we're going there with a mind to help others learn Christ. Um, whether we're there and we're going to encounter those who don't, don't yet know Christ, or we're there and we just want to encourage fellow believers, he says, pray about where God wants you to sit. Third, he says, think. And he means to think about the passage. And that's, by the way, that's what you're doing right now. As you listen to this podcast, you're doing that. Uh, you're thinking and letting the Lord begin to sort of ruminate, letting the word ruminate over over what's going on in your soul and what the Lord has to speak to you through his word on Sunday. So way to go, by the way. It says, think about the passage. And and finally, he says, make disciples. It says, you should go to Sunday morning worship with a mind to make disciples. Um, that's one of the reasons that we've we put together reflection questions you've seen on the screens after we have our, our Sunday worship service. Our thought there is that we want people to to see Sunday morning as a disciple-making context, uh, where we're there to help others learn Christ, to encourage them, to ask them what their next step with Christ might be. Um, and as we reflect on the word, that, that God would do things like we see here. God would do powerful works among us. Um, even if they're not necessarily raising people from the dead, but they're God using us. We, we're committed to the idea that when God's people speak God's word patiently and prayerfully over time, that we will see God's power at work to to help people learn Christ and to help people come to know Christ. And so that that starts and really set the tone on Sunday mornings. I would I would especially call out the community group leaders, um, but you in groups as well, that you all can set the energy for us on Sunday mornings um, by going out of your way to see Sunday morning as an avenue for, for making disciples. So God really cares about our community. He cares about Sunday morning when we gather together with the explicit purpose of worshiping Jesus and uh, that we would use that that time to the best of our abilities to glorify him. Uh, secondly, I would just encourage you, be attentive to the word. <laughs> um, I, I just I read this passage and I think, what would happen if, if our Sunday morning worship service went six hours long and deep into the night and... Of course, they're, they're hanging on the words of Paul because he's their beloved apostle and pastor and all of that. Um, but at the same time, let's be that hungry for the word. Let's, let's let the word of God break our schedules. Um, whether it's our group meetings, uh, our, our Sunday morning time together, uh, dinner with one another, we're just raking leaves in the neighborhood, we're at the coffee shop, whatever it happens to be. Let's be so intent on helping one another learn Christ and take the next step to grow in him. Um, that it takes priority over whatever else we have going on in our lives. That's These are the things that matter. These are the things that will, will last forever. So let the word break your schedule. And I, I hope those are a couple of helpful practical points of application. This is sort of an awkward passage. It's sort of a weird in-between kind of travelogue plus uh, this interesting time there in Troas. So I hope it's fruitful for discussion, and um, I hope you guys find it helpful. Uh, but now we're going to transition to a time of training. So if you are a group leader, please stay tuned in. If you're not, um, you don't need to go on. But if you're curious and you want to learn more about how to help others learn Christ, um, there are no secrets here, so you can <laughs> keep on listening and hear what, what your group leaders hear. So uh, we'll see you next week. All right, group leaders. Uh, so it's time to do some training. All right, and I promise some time talking about how to ask good questions. I'm getting close to finalizing new leader qualification, that whole process to um, 
to help us establish new group leaders and get them trained and, and commissioned to, to make disciples in groups. Uh, and one of the things I've been, I've been looking for forever and finally feel like I have a good resource on is how to just get to know people and to sort of go beyond kind of the casual chit-chat, sanitized Bible discussion level to really get into one another's hearts and, and communicate to someone, I care to know you, I care to know what's going on in your life, um, so that we can, first of all, just love and honor them, <laughs> but so that we can love them toward Christ, apply the words to their lives deeply, understand them, and help them help them grow. So this is actually, it's a chapter from a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which is actually about kind of lay counseling and like biblical counseling, helping others um, work through things. But I found it really helpful, and uh, I just want to sort of, I'm not going to read the chapter to you, but I'm going to kind of share an outline of it and, and the parts I found really helpful. So um, it starts like this. It says, everyone felt like they knew Betty and Brad. Their presence was so central to the life of our church that no gathering seemed official without them. I had spent many hours in meetings with Brad. I had been impressed by how quietly practical he was. We had picnic together as families, shared evening meals, and worked together um, on Christian school projects. We knew their children and their extended family as well. Late one autumn evening, Brad called me to go out for coffee, making it clear that he wanted to do it right then. I heard the urgency in his voice, so I got dressed and we met at a local diner. I arrived first, and as I saw Brad enter the diner, I knew that something was seriously wrong. Um, and he goes on to share the, the story of this man. I'm sure his name has been changed, of course, but named Brad and his wife and how their, their relationship had fallen apart. They were in physical arguments. Their their kids were sort of cowering in fear from them as parents and, and just how their life had just really unwound um, completely. And uh, he sort of con- he concludes this way. He says, It was hard for me to pay attention because Brad's story was so disorienting. I had known this man for years, yet I knew nothing of what he was telling me now. My mind went to the many hours we had spent with his family. This family, I had assumed I knew them, so I had never asked anything that would give them an opportunity to say anything about the true state of their personal lives. I wondered how this could have gone so, so long uh, without anyone knowing. In that moment, I realized that the most personal and important parts of our lives fly under the radar of our typical relationships in the body of Christ. We live frenetically busy lives with activity-based friendships punctuated only by brief conversations with each other. Now I was sitting across from a friend I did not know. Now, this is, this is just crucial. When we talk about relational safety and spiritual intimacy in the groups, in our groups to, to help each member grow and the values of groups, this is, without, without knowing each other well, without asking good questions and understanding and, and what he calls breaking through the casual, we're just never going to get to the level of, of meaningful heart change in the lives of, of our group members. And my experience has proven that and borne that out. And, and I know uh, for those of you who are listening, especially if you've been doing this for any period of significant period of time, um, this is, this is absolutely true. He says, think about it. Most of the conversations you had today were about, were mundane and rather self-protective. We spend most of our time talking about things that are of little personal consequence, the weather, politics, sports, and entertainment. There is nothing wrong with this except that it allows us to hide who we really are. And he gives four reasons why this is true. Um, He says, first, we despair of squeezing $10 conversations into 10 cent moments. Um, He says that even when there are times um, for us to to share and really unburden and and be open with one another, that we're trying to to squeeze huge conversations into tiny, tiny, you know, we've got two minutes together. I think of this often in community group. 
um, I sort of lament that, you know, the, the most time I have with someone is just kind of trying to find a little quiet moment, you know, in the kitchen while everyone's in the living room, just to ask someone how they really are doing. Um, there are ways to handle that and do things differently. You know, we've often had kind of different guy time and girl time where we're able to do that a little better. Um, but he says the first reason that we don't really understand each other and know each other is that we just don't have time for it. We don't make time for it. Uh, second, he says, another thing we keep things casual. Another reason we keep things casual is that we buy the lie that we are unique and struggle in ways that no one else does. He says, we forget that life for everyone is fraught with disappointment and difficulty suffering and struggle, trials and temptation. No one is from a perfect family. No one has a perfect job. No one has perfect relationships and no one does the right thing all the time. I often, I often think about this, um, in, in, with our group. I don't know if a week has ever gone by where I haven't done something that I regret. And I'm not talking about the, you know, gigantic sins, disqualifying sort of sin. I just mean there I always am carrying with me disappointment and frustration and, and kind of a bit of disillusionment and, and difficulty and suffering. And, um, and yet I come to group and maybe you do too. And I assume that everyone else has everything together. This doesn't make any sense. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. Um, but, but that's the way we tend to think. That's what he points out is we tend to think that we're unique. We struggle in ways no one else does. Everyone else is basically perfect, and I'm the only weirdo. That is not true, and our own experience should bear that out. Hopefully me telling you that should, should remind you. Uh, the third reason he says we don't get there is, is because we do not see. We don't see it. Um, he says sin is deceitful, and it causes us to see others with greater clarity than we see ourselves. Um, and, and so we, we don't see past our own sort of excuses. We, d- we don't want to know, um, and so we don't. And finally, he says, perhaps the simplest reason for a lack of self-disclosing candor is that no one asks. And that's where I would just urge you as a group leader to make that not true. He says, in the busyness of life, it seems intrusive to ask questions that cannot be answered without personal self-disclosure. Yet there is a way in which we all hunger for relationships of that quality. And by the way, the people that are in your group are not there so that they can have a nice, casual, never really getting to know each other relationship. They're there because they're hungry for relationships of that quality. Um, and, and Paul says that these are the relationships in which the Redeemer does his good work. He says the genius of personal ministry is that it is personal. It can take the grand themes of the great story of the Bible and apply them with utter specificity to the particulars of an individual life. He says that, Effective, God-honoring, heart-changing personal ministry is dependent on a rich base of personal information. You cannot minister well to someone you do not know. And if I want to give you something practical there, I hope that maybe that's just a reminder this week to, to not make sort of assumptions about where people are at, but to really dig in and ask the deep questions and, and not be afraid to feel like you're being a little bit intrusive and letting them decide whether that's weird or not. Um but let me give you a, a practical practical thing that he mentions here. And there's more there, but I'm, I'm really skimming over it if you haven't noticed. And he says, he, he addresses the problem of assumptions. He says, why don't, we take, why don't we take the time to ask better questions and really listen? He says, we assume. It's because we assume. Um, and he says this, there are two main reasons we assume too much. One, he says, is theological. The other is experiential. The first, he says, um, we have the curse of Bible knowledge, <laughs> if that's possible to say. Um, because we feel like we know the, what the Bible says about people in general, 
about what people struggle with and what people are like and, and what, what it's like to be a human according to the Bible, that we tend to sort of flatten people's personalities. We tend to sort of assume that people are, people are kind of generally like what we see generally categorized in the Bible, um, when in fact God is so creative that he makes each of us in fascinatingly different ways. He is way too creative to make two people who are exactly the same, um, and God uniquely creates each one of us, even though he is sovereignly authoring and directing each of our stories. There are obviously familiar elements, and the things that the Bible teaches us about human nature is true for everyone, um, but uh, the uniqueness of each person's story means that when we're ministering to them, helping them learn Christ, uh, we'll be greatly helped if we pay attention to God's creativity in how he has made them, in their personality, how their life has been broken, how their personality has been damaged through trauma and all that thing, all those kinds of things, and therefore what the, that person really needs to hear from us. So even though, he says, assumption number one is because we've read the Bible, we understand people. And while there's, some, there's truth to that, it only goes so far because people are all different. Um, secondly, he says we assume too much because in our experience, we, we see people often, this is a curse for us when we, this is a problem for us. I should stop saying curse. This is a problem for us when we are in, in ministry with people in our groups who are very similar to us. Maybe they're similar age to us or similar kind of stage in life, similar sort of socioeconomic status, similar race, whatever gender we sort of figure, Oh, I know Bob because he's, he's, you know, I'm, I do this, but he works at a company that's kind of similar in a similar field. And he's, you know, also white like me and he, you know, whatever, all the, he, we're all, we're kind of similar. And so therefore we assume that all of, all of that person's experiences, all of their, when they read the Bible, they see the same thing as says us, that they're burdened by the same sort of sins and sufferings and that they sort of have an identical experience when, Ooh, that is so often not true. Uh, so often not true. So, uh, what we need to do is is to reject assuming and and just assume that people are not exactly like us and be curious enough. I've I've said this before, but um, uh, community groups uh, being a community group leader is a ministry of curiosity. We need to ask those questions and go deep with people so that they can be honest about who they are and so that we're not deceived and giving them terrible sort of advice and terrible encouragement that's actually discouraging to them. Um, because of parts of their past that we don't understand, parts of their personalities we don't yet understand because we've made assumptions. So um, Paul says we need to ask people to define their terms, ask them to define their terms. When they use a word, ask them what that means. Ask people to clarify what they mean with concrete real-life examples that they have used. Um, and I know I'm rushing through this. It's because I'm looking at the clock. Anyway, if you want to know more, by the way, I'll totally send you this this uh, this chapter and uh, you can can read through it. If you if you still need to go through new group leader training, guess what? This is part of it, so um, you'll get it soon. Um, it says always ask people to explain why they responded as they did in examples they've given. Um, instead of when someone says the example he gives is actually really helpful. He says, you know, if if a woman comes up to you or in group whatever and says um, she and her husband had a huge fight last night. You should not assume that you know what she means by that. Uh, and you can think of examples from your own group in life where um, people have said, well, this, uh, I, we're, we're really struggling financially. And you assume what that means because you know what that would look like for you. And I, I, can't, even, I can't even give an example because for one, for one family, struggling means one thing. And for another, it means, you know, we have to give up Netflix or whatever that might be. And for one, it means we might lose our house. Same thing. Huge fight. What does that mean? It could mean um, we, she gave me a wrong look and he said a hurtful thing and therefore we didn't talk for the rest of the night. And that was a huge fight. 
for some for some it it means we had a knockdown drag out we had a physical altercation and your your response to that is really going to be different based off of the answer to what does that mean for you so we need to be sure we're we're asking those questions all right i'm going to stop there i hope if if i piqued your interest dig deeper and i'll reach out to me and i'll i'll send that on to you uh, i hope this is helpful for you and uh, i i can't wait to meet with you guys soon i know i'm meeting with you guys for these january and february sessions to to coach you up and uh, encourage you and pray for you if you haven't met made an appointment by the way to meet with me for january and february there are a few that haven't i would just encourage you to to go ahead and do that but let's uh let's finish our time i'm going to uh, pray go ahead and pray with me Heavenly Father, help us uh, to encourage our group members this week, especially through Acts 20, through this uh, this this story with uh, Eutychus and this miracle that happened through the hands of Paul. I pray that you would help our people to grow as they learn from your word. Help us to be encouraging. Fill us with your power to say the words that you want to say to your people uh, to ask the right questions, to understand them, and to encourage them in the way of Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, it's been fun. We'll uh, talk to you next week. And um, just love you guys. Let's continue to make disciples together.